I never intended to kill anybody. But I did have every intention to paralyze someone so that they could suffer the same way that my friend was suffering. But as you could imagine, David, you shoot a gun, you have no control over those bullets. And there was a young man by the name of William Stuckey. Very recently, I've got to know who he is, who he was. This 18-year-old kid, same age as I was, who wasn't even from the neighborhood. He's from the north side, came down to hang out with some of his friends. And I shot and killed him. I took someone's life. This past Saturday, I was in a meeting that had to do with the Fund Peace Coalition, a larger group of people working nationally around these issues. The question was asked, why do you do this work? What brought you to this work? And I said two things. I said, one is, I live my life and I'm going to live the rest of my life to honoring the people that I've harmed the most. My family, other people, and that also includes William. Now, even though I've paid my debt to society, that's for me, it's like I've done that already. But now I have an obligation to Christ. I'm a person of faith. I believe in God. And what that really means to me is living a life of atonement, of redemption. And the best way that I believe with my limited knowledge of my understandings is that I chose to live my life by helping other people who are in the very similar positions that I was when I was 18 or 14 or 13 or someone who's coming home from prison when I was 32. That was the voice of Eddie Bocanegra, a former gang member who grew up in what seemed to him to be a combat zone on the southwest side of Chicago. At age 18, he was convicted of murder and served 14 years in prison. Now, with a master's degree in social work, he serves as senior director of the Ready Chicago program of Heartland Alliance, working with a remarkable team doing remarkable work to prevent gun violence. Before we get to our full conversation, here are a couple more excerpts to give you just a taste of the public policy feast ahead. There's a professor by the name of Elijah Anderson who wrote a book, The Code of the Streets. And he's a sociologist. About 20 years ago or so, he was studying some groups here in Chicago. And one of his conclusions, right, or something that I took away from this book that has not changed, is this idea of respect. Well, for a lot of people that come from our neighborhoods, the west side, south side of Chicago, and even pockets in the north side, we have to understand that our social capital looks nothing like yours or most people in our state. And what Elijah Anderson points out is that one form of capital that for people that we serve within Ready and others, right, that come from these neighborhoods, is really about reputation. Reputation is your capital. And the way you defend that reputation, right, as you pointed out, it's by acts of violence. And when you ask a lot of our guys, right, they'll tell you, I don't want to be a victim. I'd rather be the, the aggressor. I'd rather be the perpetrator. Because once you're a victim, people have to understand this. Once you become a victim, you have opened yourself up for the rest of your community to further victimize you. And that is true, David. That is so true. Our country, our society, we're fixated with this 
believe that by incarcerating people and by throwing away the key, you're going to create a safer community. And all the literature, not only in this country, but around the world, says otherwise. We have a very hard time in being open and receptive to something different, which is changing culture in many ways. Right? We're trying to change the culture of the criminal justice field. And that takes time. And that during that time, it also comes at a high cost of human beings. This is Justice Voices, stories that need to be told, voices that need to be heard. Welcome to Justice Voices. I'm David Risley. Our guest today is Eddie Bocanegra, who's Senior Director of an Innovative Violence Prevention Program of Heartland Alliance named Ready Chicago. Mr. Bocanegra, welcome. Thank you, David. It's really a pleasure being here today. Well, it's a pleasure to have you here. I've been looking forward to this conversation for about three years now, since the first time we met, well, back when I was working in the governor's office as Director of Public Safety Policy. I heard you speak at an event in Chicago, and I was impressed. I approached you afterwards. We arranged to meet. We subsequently got together at your office area at Ready Chicago in the Heartland Alliance offices, and you told me about Ready Chicago, but you also told me about your backstory. And I remember telling you then, this is a story that has to be told. And that was actually part of my initial thinking of the things that percolated in my mind that ultimately ended up with Justice Voices, stories that need to be told, voices that need to be heard. And yours is one of them. So I'd like to hear that story. But first, just a little background. You have a master's degree in social work from the University of Chicago. You have a lot of experience developing and managing violence prevention programs even before joining Heartland Alliance. And you are now with Ready Chicago. So what I'd like to do is to cover what Ready Chicago is in some detail toward the latter part of this conversation. But right now, why don't you just tell us what Ready Chicago is and give us an overview. Sure, David. So Ready Chicago was actually birthed out of the spike in violence that we saw here in Chicago back in 2016, where we saw over 750 homicides, nearly 4,000 shootings. And as a result of that, it really brought together the University of Chicago's Crime Lab and Heartland Alliance to think about what are the best practices out there? How can we put our heads together, think about innovation and best practice, and how do we actually continue this, uh, this, this idea of providing the best quality that we can for a specific population? And here's what I mean by specific population. When we think about gun violence, it's very concentrated in certain pockets of our, of our communities. And... There's a lot of common threads around that. And so one of the big questions was, imagine if you're able to identify individuals who are more likely to be a victim of gun violence or a perpetrator. And you take a very proactive approach by addressing their immediate needs and creating a viable pathway where they could actually find themselves as part of the community. And so in essence, Red Chicago was designed with three key variables, which is identifying those who are at the highest risk of gun involvement, saturating them with resources, and particularly two of those resources is transitional jobs 
and kind of behavioral therapy. And that is Ready Chicago. There are a number of aspects to that that I really want to hear more about later on. But let's go back before that, because part of the reason I've been so eager to talk to you on this program is your personal backstory. At a young age, you were sent to prison yourself. Now, I have to say, talking to you now, as the Eddie Bocanegra of today, that's hard to imagine. But in your younger years, you had personal experience with street organizations, with street violence, and the kinds of things that can lead to tragic outcomes in the lives of both victims and perpetrators of violence. Hearing and understanding your personal story about that past is important to understanding your story in the present. Will you please share that with us? Yeah, absolutely, David. So let me start by saying this. I did not choose to be born to the set of parents that I was born to or into the zip code that I was born into. And yet those primary factors really determine the outcomes to a great extent of what your future is going to look like, of what you're going to be exposed to and how you navigate certain things in your life. And that tends to be very true in many communities across the country where we see huge disinvestments or marginalization because of whether it's race or socioeconomic mobility and so on. So I say that because the first time that I remember seeing violence was actually at home. And my first memories of that particular you know, domestic violence was probably around the age of six or so. And, and I would often see my mother with busted lips, bruised eyes. I would hear arguments off and on. And Every time that I approached my mom and said, hey, what happened to you? It was this excuse, right, about something happened to her in the backyard or something happened to her while she was doing something. And I think part of it was she was really shielding me from, like, this is a result of your father. And now as, as an adult, as I think about what caused my dad to do what he did, I unpack why he did some of the things that he did. Why did he choose certain things in his life? And I can't help but to pinpoint everything back to his exposure to trauma, his exposure to navigating, acclimating here in the United States when he migrated here back in the late 1950s and early 60s. And what was that like for him? So a lot more that I could say that, but that was my first exposure to violence. Shortly after that, I'm in school, I'm in grammar school, and then I see violence at school. Some of it was bullying that I would witness. Sometimes it was other kind of violence within gangs. Sometimes it's simply because you lived in a certain part of the neighborhood, you were right away affiliated. And so that was the second time that I, I recall being exposed to, to violence. And it's funny, David, because I just mentioned two places right now that children should feel safe. And yet these two places, I felt none of that. So by the time I was 13, I remember seeing a young man shot and killed just a few yards away from me as I was walking towards a local park. And I was walking through this street, which represents an, an imaginary borderline between two gang factions that, that have been fighting each other since the early 1970s. And I remember seeing this young kid run right in front of me, and right behind them was another young man. Both of them couldn't be any older than, than 20. They were probably between the ages of 16 and 19. And I, and I just saw this young man get shot in the back and and died. He died 
I say he died because I, I didn't see him moving. I didn't see him doing anything. It was just it was just bleeding to death. And I remember how I reacted to that. And of course, I was startled. I was I was afraid. And I saw the neighbors' lack of approaching this young man who was on the ground. And just a few minutes later, which felt like an eternity to me, I actually walked away and ran through the same courtyard that this individual and his friend were at to get to my baseball game. Long story short, I recall sharing this with my teammates, sharing this with my baseball coach, and the questions that were asked were, what gang was he from? What was his nickname? And that kind of stuff. And there was no conversation with my peers about, are you okay? Nor my coach. And then when I went back home, there was no conversation with my parents about what I just witnessed. And then the following week when I went to school, there was no conversations with school counselors or teachers about what I had just witnessed. And it's almost like it never happened. So the following year, I joined a street gang. And people, right, your, your listeners, David, have to understand, you know, when, when we hear the mayor of Chicago or other mayors or people in government say, we got to eradicate these gangs. You know, we got to suppress them. We've got to lock them up. I think too often we forget who these individuals really are and what their story really is. Because the following year, as I mentioned, I joined the gang. And there were primarily two reasons why I joined the gang. And these seem to be true across the country. One was that I wanted to protect my siblings. I was the oldest of five, and I didn't want the gangs to recruit them. That was primary reason number one. Especially as I was getting older, I was being exposed to more of the streets now. So there's this life, right, that's happening that I'm trying to better understand. And up to that point in my life at 14, I believe that this is the best option that I have to protect my siblings. The second reason, David, and this happens to be even more the reason why people join gangs, is that I remember watching sitcom shows like Seven Heaven and Different Strokes. And I remember asking myself, why is it that my family is not like that family? Why is it that, that our home, which is about 800 square feet with seven people in it, isn't the same size as the houses that I see in these sitcom shows? And why is it that the problems that I see there are not similar to the problems that I see in my own house? So right away at a young age, I realized there was these two worlds. And, and that had an impact on me. Because when I would look at my neighbors, most of them were landscapers. Most of them worked in factories or hotels. And I did not see myself doing that work. And I say this to you with a lot of shame today as an adult, because there's nothing wrong with that. But at the moment, as a 14-year-old, I just knew that's not what I wanted to do. And so, in essence, that is why I joined the gang too. Now, people have to also understand these things about gangs, and even when there's like maybe programs and so on, programs are very few in between. And I think what happens a lot of times is what we call this identity formation. And Eric Erickson points it out very well in his early research as a psychologist is that when you're thinking about from the ages of 13 to about 18, 19, like your, your self-identity, right, is emerging. You're trying to look, you're, you're looking around you, you're trying to figure out who are you, what's your purpose in this life? But when you have limited options of what that identity could be, right, most of the time, your understanding of the world is like, well, this group of people seem to be protecting our neighborhood. 
this group of people seem to be walking around with pride. This group of people, right, I could relate to because they're very similar to me. They struggle with the very similar issues that I struggle with, like such as domestic violence and so on. And that's that's what brings people into these gangs. The other thing is that, David, gangs, they don't discriminate in large. They don't care if you're small, short, tall, big, skinny, heavyweight. Like, it doesn't matter, David. Most gangs don't discriminate, and they work around the clock. And so when I think about gangs, I think about the shortfalls of governments, where government has fallen short. Because these gangs, right, these cliques, these social clubs are emerging in many cases because the inability of government to fulfill certain needs that these young people actually encounter. Which is why often, David, you don't see people recruiting into the gangs at 25 or 30 years old. Like, they're recruited while they're young. And they're recruited for young for the same reason that even our military recruits while they're young. Because that stage of, of identity formation is still kind of happening. This, this sense of belonging, right? A place. Feeling like I want to be part of something much bigger than me, but I'm not sure what that is. And that, safe. And safe, David. Listen, for, for your viewers... If you don't come from these neighborhoods, right, I understand it's hard to conceptualize what does safety look like for you. But I will tell you this, most of the men that I work with were in Chicago, which by the way, on average have 17 or 18 arrests, you know, they four to five felony arrests. I could tell you that this particular group of people, they recognize that law enforcement has a place in the community and they want the police to be there. But too often what they don't want to see happen is their rights to be infringed. What they also are, are hoping, right, is that people could step up and provide more options for them and their children because many of the people that we work with are fathers as well. So all this is simply say that people do want better in their lives. The question is too often, they don't always know what options are out there to create a pathway for what this better really means. And here's the last thing that I'll say, David, as it relates to like, who am I and how I view this world? So first of all, I'm a father of seven beautiful children. My wife, Catherine, her upbringing is very different than my upbringing. I grew up in the west side of Chicago in a neighborhood known as Little Village, where I grew up there in the, 19, in the late 1980s and early, 19, early 1990s. This is where Chicago was seeing homicides up to 1,000. My wife grew up in Northfield. She went to a really good high school uh, up there, uh, Nutrier. She's a professor. She's got her PhD. She's a professor at UIC in the social work department. She also does some work for the attorney general here with Kwame Raul. Did you ever take a class from her when you were in school? Uh, I did not because she wasn't teaching just yet. Okay. <laughs> I did <laughs> just not. Just curious. I, I, I did not. But I, ha I have sat in some of her classes and she she's wonderful. I mean, I could tell you that I, I learned a lot from her in terms of how I frame my conversations to be quite honest too. But in essence, right, like her upbringing is very different than mine. You know, we live here in, in uh, LaGrange Park, Illinois, beautiful suburb of Chicago. I love our neighbors. My, my kids are going to be exposed to totally something different than I grew up with. The, the reason why I mention all that too, Dave, is because I also have, as I mentioned earlier, four other siblings. And three of the four served the armed forces. And I remember in 2005, my brother Gabriel was just returning back from his second tour in Iraq. So he was one of the first units deployed into the Iraq war. In 03, and then he got recalled in 05 after he had done his four year 
uh, as an enlistment. And I remember, and I would always tell my brothers, hey, when you come and visit me in prison, come with a uniform. And my brothers would be like, why? I said, because when you wear your uniform, right, many of the correctional officers here are also, they, they serve in the military or their kids are serving in the military. And I just want them to see me differently. I want them to see that like I actually come from a good family too. I want them to like, stop messing with me, right? That I actually have some resources and people that I could reach out to, to for support, especially when they're doing wrong. But I remember this one day when he came to visit me, he had his army uh, dress up. So in his left lapel, he had these beautiful ribbons, 32 missions, all the trainings, deployments. You see in his sleeves, the, 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 the two lines there, and then on his right side, breast, you see his name, you know, Boca Negra, and 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 you see on his on his collar, right, you see these these rifles, which was he's a he's an infantry, he's reconnaissance. And we had just finished exchanging stories of, of conflict, right? He was telling me about what he had just witnessed down there and, and loss of his friends. I'm sharing with him about what's happening in prison, reminiscing some of the old memories as a kid, right, that he witnessed as a kid as well. And as we're parting ways, I remember standing up in the visiting room. And it's a little table right in front of us, probably about four feet by four feet. And I'm I'm looking at my brother. And I'm so at all. I am so proud of my brother. And there's two things that came to mind. And I'll never forget. There's two things that came to mind that moment, David. One is that I couldn't believe that even after being in prison, I was still impacting my brother and what I would say to some degree in a negative way because he joined the army because of me, because he knew that's what I wanted to do prior to you know, going to prison because I was trying to get away from all this stuff. And my brother, who's now a full disabled veteran, and he's sharing these stories, right, of what he's been through, it reminded me like the very same reason why I joined a gang to kind of so that I could protect my siblings. I failed to protect them even here by the choices that he made by joining the military. He never fully understood why I wanted to join the military. The second thought that I had as I was looking at his awards and omissions, I said to myself, wow, my brother has been giving all these ribbons and all these awards, Bronze Star and so on, for acts of valor, for acts of what I consider also a violence. And our country validates that level of violence or that type of violence. And here I stand in front of him in my prison uniform with my ID in my left lapel, which has my picture, the name, Illinois Department of Corrections, and then has my ID number B75782. And I said, in my mind, I was like, I used to have to navigate from my house to my school Every day, I had to take different streets so that the rival gangs didn't have to, like they weren't plotting. I had to navigate when I would take my parents or go with my parents grocery shopping or when I would go somewhere outside of our neighborhood. I had to navigate when my friend was shot and thinking to myself, like, how do I get him from this point to the other point without also being shot? And whether... Your audience believe this or not, David. As a kid, I felt that I was growing up in an environment that was very similar to what we see a lot of civil wars. In a combat zone. 
in a combat zone, David. That's what it felt like for me as someone who was actively engaged from the age of 14 all the way to 18. And I'm not trying to say that whether it's right or wrong. I'm not, I'm not justifying any, any of that on both ends, military or my, my sibling or myself. What I'm pointing out here is at the end of the day, who validates trauma? Who validates acts of violence? And how do we support each one of these groups? Because they look very different, David. They look very different. And that's where I spend most of my life and my time trying to unpack and trying to address. Is that piece there? How do I get people in Red Chicago to have similar outcomes than the ones that I've had? And that, to me, is what we try to replicate. Because people also have to understand, as I mentioned earlier, that these folks that I'm referring to, when 82% of them have been victims of violence, they've been stabbed, shot, or assaulted, 37% have been victims of gun violence before they came to our program, that means 37%, David, have been shot before they came to Ready Chicago. And I don't know another program in this country besides hospitals or the VA that works in providing services for a population that have been survivors of gun violence. So, and I'm happy to discuss more about what that looks like in just a second. Well, let me, just a couple of reflections on what you've shared, because this is essentially what, in our first conversation, you were sharing with me. There's a couple of themes in this. One is trauma, trauma from violence. And the other is respect, self-identity, respect. And speaking of trauma first, I don't know whether you're familiar with the work of a criminologist, Lonnie Athens, who has studied what makes violent people violent. And he found that there was a commonality among the now well over 100 that he's studied and that is that they go through a process that he describes as violentization. It begins with exactly the sort of experiences that you're talking about, usually violence in the home, domestic violence. And it certainly progresses if there's violence in the community. He talks about five stages of violentization, the first of which is this brutalization stage, at which essentially... Someone, usually a young person, comes to the conclusion, this is a dog-eat-dog world, and if I'm going to survive in it, I have to be more violent than the people who are doing violence to me. And he talks about the humiliation of being weak, of feeling helpless, and feeling the need to somehow come up with solutions to this problem of violence and the trauma of violence. And it leads very rationally very logically, and very progressively toward a decision that I need to become a violent person myself, a person who is feared so that I can be safe, so that I can protect my family and the people that I care about, my friends. And it goes through stages, and you've just described the process that Lonnie Athens calls violentization. I did a couple of episodes on that in the early stages, early episodes of Justice Voices, for those who may be listening and interested in that. One of the other themes is that of respect. In Maslow's hierarchy of needs, the theory is that the most basic need is for survival. 
And over the course of my career as a federal prosecutor, dealing with the people I did, many of whom were from the sorts of circumstances that you're talking about, I came to the conclusion that there's a more fundamental need than for survival, and that's the need for respect, to be respected. And people are willing to die rather than lose respect, to be disrespected. And so when you put those two things together, trauma and the effects of trauma on the brain and upon thinking and perceptions of young people, and the need to be respected, my goodness, the path that you are describing toward some sort of street organization, street gang, is probably the most predictable and the most logical path that a young person would follow who's trying to cope with life, cope with the world around them, and become a somebody rather than a nobody. Yeah, yeah. To me, if you're going to fight gangs, then you've got to address what is it that leads people to become members of gangs? Because these are fundamental human needs. Yeah. It's essentially an adaptive behavior, a coping behavior. Now, it leads to some tragic outcomes. It did in your case. Why don't you tell us about that? I know this is deeply personal and probably painful. Well, I know it'd be painful, but if you're willing to, would you share that with us? Sure, David. So two two quick reflections uh, on what you just shared. There's a professor by the name of Elijah Anderson who wrote a book, The Code of the Streets. And he's a sociologist. About 20 years ago or so, he was studying some groups here in Chicago. And one of his conclusions, right, or something that I took away from this book that has not changed, which he just highlighted just a second ago, is this idea of respect. We have to think about this. Like, David, you worked in government you have so much tremendous social capital. Uh, I'm sure your listeners here are probably people that you've known for some time that respect you, right? Respect your points of views and so on. And if you were to be in trouble, right? There's people you could reach out to and say, hey, I could use your help here and so on. And that's that's your form of social capital. And then there's also capital financially, right? You, you've you worked hard, you've invested, right? You know, you have your own home and that kind of stuff. Well, for a lot of people that come from our neighborhoods, the west side, south side of Chicago, and even pockets in the north side, we have to understand that our social capital or financial capital looks nothing like yours or most people in, in, in our state. And what Elijah Anderson points out is that one form of capital that for people that we serve within Ready and others, right, that come from these neighborhoods, is really about reputation. Reputation is your capital. And the way you defend that reputation, right, as you pointed out, is by acts of violence. And when you ask a lot of our guys, right, they'll tell you, I don't want to be a victim. I'd rather be the, the aggressor. I'd rather be the perpetrator. Because once you're a victim, people have to understand this. Once you become a victim, you have opened yourself up for the rest of your community to further victimize you. And that is true, David. That is so true. The other thing that I'll point out, there's a researcher, I believe he's still, he's still out of Texas right now, but was here in Northwestern for some time, Bruce Perry. And he did a lot of studies by using CAT scans and brain scans around what does a 13-year-old kid who grew up in Northfield, Illinois, looks like 
compared to a 13-year-old kid who is growing up in Little Village or in North Lawndale, Inglewood, who are exposed to chronic violence. And brain scans. Brain scans. And what they determine, right, through these scans is that the young kid who might be growing up in the North Suburbs, their developmental stages, right, their, the way the brain is still kind of evolving, right, and, and, and developing is, is perfectly natural. When you look at somebody who's exposed to chronic violence, chronic trauma, you see that brain much smaller. So what does that mean, right? Sometimes that means that people are misdiagnosed. Sometimes that means that people have a harder time to cope, to respond to certain situations, right? To grow that empathy as well. And those are all issues that our communities are grappling with as well. Now, even within the context of these communities, to be fair, some people, they make it, they graduate, they, they get a good job, they move on. And the environment never really impacted them. And there's so many studies, and we're, I know we're not going to debate about, you know, whether it's nurture or, or versus uh, uh, nature, but at the end of the day, right, here's the, the bottom line. Environmental factors really matter. What you're exposed to, right, the kind of skills that you're, you're given, that you're able to see from your parents or other loved ones, right, of how they cope really matters. And even when you have the best tools, when you're constantly being exposed to, to trauma, to violence, like it has an impact to, for you, both in the short in the short term and the long term. And we see that even more so today, more so than in time before. We see it with veterans. We see people who've done prison time. That even after they served their time in the military or in prison and they come home, they're 55, they're 60 years old. A lot of that trauma that has gone unaddressed and they thought that they had addressed, right? They thought they have suppressed it actually comes back and it has so many other health implications as well. So I wanted just to make sure that, you know, people just understood that part. I think getting back to your question, you know. Can I, before you do you do that, can I interject something here? Sure, sure. One of the things that is, it was one of my mantras that I kept repeating when I was in the governor's office, and I keep repeating it on this program, is that when it comes to criminal justice policy, it's imperative that we shift from a punishment paradigm to a problem-solving paradigm. Because the things that you're describing, you cannot punish your way out of these problems. That does not solve the problem. And prison itself is a traumatic experience, particularly for violent offenders who are usually put in with other violent offenders, which increases everything that is making them violent to begin with. And so prison as a punishment can actually produce people at the far end of it that are more dangerous than when they went in. If we are going to take a rational approach to being a crime fighter. Well, it's not by, well, let's punish these people more, and maybe that will solve this community problem. If we just punish enough people harshly enough that somehow the community, the environment that you're talking about, and the responses of people to that environment will change. Well, that is irrational. That's one of the reasons Justice Voices exists, is to listen to reality as you're describing it, and for people to wake up, realize that a lot of what we do 
in our criminal justice system and policies is counterproductive. Yeah. It's not a rational problem-solving response. So I am really interested in hearing what you're about to say next. Yeah, yeah. Well, let me respond back to that too, David, because that, that, you said a lot there. You said a lot. And I think that, listen, I'm extremely patriotic. I love our country. If you go to my house, I have a Victorian home with these you know, half flags in, in front of our house. And right now I'm looking at our Mexican flag because Mexican Independence Day is coming up this week. But for the most part, I have my American flag outside. And because of my siblings and other, my nephews and so on have served the military, there's a sense of patriotism, right? I have some conservative views and I have some very liberal views. But I have a hard time understanding how is it that a well-developed nation that has been founded in all these principles that we talk and brag and talk about democracy and so on, that one day my brother came to visit me and he was crying. And he said, here I am in a foreign land fighting for democracy, but in my own country, you're not going to have your full rights restored. And there are many other Americans here who in many states are unable to vote. And so he was having this, these epiphanies, right? These, these reflections about he sacrificing his life and the life of his men, as he was a sergeant at the time, for someone else's you know, right to vote. And in our own country, people who have been formerly incarcerated, people who have, been, who have a conviction, in some states you're unable to do so. And I know you had Martin Chamberlain, who's doing some amazing work in the space of criminal justice reform, He's leading an effort called the uh, Fully Free Campaign. And it's sad that our state, our very own state here in Illinois, is the state's second uh, with the most laws that prevent people who've been formerly incarcerated to move up, to be able to live, restore their lives back to normal, to whatever that normalcy might, might look like. Permanent punishment, he calls it. It is. It is, David. It is because I've been home 12 years. I've came home in 2008. I served 14 years and three months to be exact. And according to the judge, that's what I was sentenced. I made mistakes along the way. I made some good choices along the way. And never in a million years did I think that I would be in the position that I'm in right now. Before I left prison, David, I was paying for some corresponding courses at Louisiana University where I was getting my bachelor's in economics. And I said to myself, Nobody's going to give me a job because I have a class sex background. And so I got to create my own job. So I'm going to sell hot dogs. I had a business plan. I said, I'm going to, I'm going to $500 startup and I'm going to sell hot dogs in front of the Cook County Jail. I did not want to move to Texas where my siblings were at. I did not want to work in the oil rigs with my cousins and so on. I said, nope, because Texas is even more conservative for people like myself. And so I feel like maybe I have a fighting chance here in Chicago. So I said, I'm going to sell hot dogs. Little did I know that I'm actually leading one of the largest anti-violence programs in the country right now. Little did I know that I would be part of various mayors in their transition teams or their public safety committees or sitting in various boards, including the Public Welfare Foundation, or meeting with the president, which I did about three months ago, back in June. I met private private meeting with the president for an hour and a half to talk about what we're learning through Ready Chicago, or hosting the attorney general just two months ago as well here in Chicago. I mean, I could go on, right? My point here is that 
Who would have imagined? I, ne- I For sure, I never would have imagined that. And yet all of this was in you, maybe in a seed form, yeah. in your youth when you were on a very different track, in a very different yep. environment. Yep. I, I, I agree with you. I agree with you. And all it took is for someone to see the potential in me. All it took is for someone to see if I give Eddie the right resources and the right supports, right, the right encouragement, the right coaching, right, and then I'm able to remove some of the barriers that he's seen right now, right, like maybe Eddie has a chance. And, you know, it's funny, the parole system I know today is starting to look different than it did, you know, 12 years ago. But let me tell you, my the parole for me created more challenges and created more red tape and barriers for my success than anything else. And so it's also something that we, right, as a society should, should re-examine. And the last thing that I'll say as it relates to this particular comment you mentioned too, David, is that when I mentioned about being patriotic and leading the nation, the, the world for that matter, right, we also lead in incarceration. And I think about the injustice behind that. I think about that there's so much science and research that tells us today, David, that incarcerating people is not necessarily a good thing, especially for an extensive period of time. And so when people are under our care, right, they're under the Department of Corrections care or in any jail, what are we doing proactively to mitigate some of the challenges that led them to go to prison to begin with? whether you're an adult or a juvenile. You know, uh, several years ago, I'm not sure what the number is today, but in the Illinois Department of Corrections for Juveniles, IDJJ, our average cost was about $172,000 to incarcerate a juvenile. I'm not sure what the number is today, right? But can you imagine $172,000 per year to incarcerate a young person? Imagine if we use that money for something else to support that individual through clinical services or through education. For adults, the Sentencing Policy Advisory Council has done a study of the true cost of incarcerating adults, including emerging adults, here in Illinois. And they concluded that the true cost is about $70,000 per person per year. And when I was in the governor's office, in fiscal year, I think it was 2018, I asked the question of the Illinois Department of Corrections, what's the median time that people spend in prison? I don't mean the mean or the average time, which gets skewed upward because of people who are serving very long sentences. The uh, median time, which is the hinge point for those who aren't familiar with the term, at which half the people serve less and half the people serve more. And the time, as I, if I recall correctly, was eight months. Yeah. Wow. Now, at a cost like that, I mean, that's just not rational. But the other problem is, I, now, I'm not saying that we should do away with prisons because prisons serve an important function. Incarceration yeah. serves an important function. It yeah. interrupts a cycle of violence. It can incapacitate dangerous people. But I firmly believe that people should be incarcerated only for the amount of time necessary to incapacitate them until they are no longer a threat to the community if they were to be released. They need to be kept that long, but no longer than that. And that means it needs to be an indeterminate rather than determinate sentencing system. So these are all themes that Justice Voices explores, and we won't get into all of them here. 
But these are important issues. Now, you yourself ended up in some very tragic circumstances. Let's loop back to that. Sure, sure. That led you to have a personal experience with what it's like to be inside prison. Absolutely, David. So I was 18 years old when uh, two of my friends, Ricardo and Alberto, were shot. And uh, Ricardo was shot and paralyzed. And so these were two individuals that I really, truly looked up to. They were much older than I was. They were in their mid-20s. And they really looked out for me quite a bit. I mean, they looked out for me even to the point where they would try to keep me out of trouble. I mean, they literally would, you know, they were like my big brothers who would just say, hey, go back to school or why are you out here right now? Aren't you supposed to be working? Because I had this part-time job. And they were those kind of individuals. And I knew that. I knew they were good people. We were just happy to be in a gang. But I knew they really cared about me. So when they were shot, I, and, and I, and I remember a few weeks later, going to my friend Ricardo's house and telling him, hey, I got these concert tickets. Like, let's go. And I was trying to just lift him up. And he just, I remember him telling me, Eddie, I, I'm not the same person. You know, it didn't dawn to me, David, about psychologically, what is he going through? What, is, what does it really mean to be paralyzed, you know, from your waist down? And I remember a few days later, as I was grappling with this and trying to better understand it, a group of my friends said, hey, those guys that shot your friends, they're over there. They're just down the block. And long story short, I remember going out there and I saw the group of people. And I remember, I never intended, David, I want to I wanna be really clear. I never intended to kill anybody. But I did have every intention to paralyze someone so that they could suffer the same way that my friend was suffering. But as you could imagine, David, you shoot a gun, you have no control over those bullets. And there was a young man by the name of William uh, Stuckey, who I, I won't go into the details, but very recently, I've got to know who he is, who he was. This 18-year-old kid, same age as I was, who wasn't even from the neighborhood. He was from the north side, came down to hang out with some of his friends, and I shot and killed him. And there's no other nice way of, of or a way of saying this. My anger, my frustration, my sadness of seeing my friend translated to trying to inflict that same emotions to someone else. And I took someone's life. I took a, a life that wasn't mine to begin with. And this past Saturday, I was in a meeting that had to do with the Fund Peace Coalition, a larger group of people working nationally around these issues. The question was asked, why do you do this work? What brought you to this work? And I said two things. I said, one is, I live my life and I'm going to live the rest of my life to honoring the people that I've harmed the most. My family, other people, and that also includes William. Now, even though I've paid my debt to society, that's for me, it's like I've done that already. But now I have an obligation to Christ. I'm a person of faith. I believe in God. And what that really means to me is living a life of atonement, of redemption. And the best way that I believe with my limited knowledge 
of my understandings is that I chose to live my life by helping other people who are in the very similar positions that I was when I was 18 or 14 or 13 or someone who's coming home from prison when I was 32. That's how I'm going to spend the rest of my life. I spend, I was sentenced to 29 years by a judge named Vincent Gone, which I had wrote a letter for, to him about seven years ago. I've never delivered it. I have not delivered this letter, and I plan to. I plan to now more than ever to thank him. To thank him because he could have given me 20 years. He could have given me 40 or 60 years. But he gave me 29 years, in which at the time, the law in Illinois allowed me to do half of that time. So I did 14 years in three months, and I got three months of good behavior. Had I caught my case just a couple years later, David, I still would have been locked up. If I would have got 29 years just a few years later, I still would have been incarcerated. Which also goes back to your earlier comment. Have I done more good for our society today, right now, given the fact that I was released under this old law? Which was an indeterminate sentencing system. Pretty much. I mean, you, you do half of the time. Exactly. And you do half of the you time. Have to do a, you have to do at least... At half least. the time. Exactly. But then but then you could do the maximum time if you're misbehaving, you're correct doing things. So the parole uh, board decides when it is that you're going to be released during that time based on your individual behavior. Yeah. Whereas now we've moved to so-called truth and sentencing where no matter what you do to improve your life in prison, you know, to become a better or a worse person, you're all going to serve the same amount of time yeah. in prison. Yep, yep. Rough, so, pretty much. Yes, David, spot on. But here's the reason why I'm glad you lifted that up. Our our country, our society, we're fixated with this belief that by incarcerating people and by throwing away the key, you're going to create a safer community. And all the literature, not only in this country, but around the world, says otherwise. We have a very hard time in being open and receptive to something different, which is changing culture in many ways, right? We're trying to change the culture of the criminal justice field, right? And that takes time. And that during that time, it also comes at a high cost of human beings. Now, the reason why I point this out too, David, is simply because of this. Again, had I still been incarcerated, or had I been sentenced under the sentencing law, I still would be incarcerated. I believe, and maybe I'm biased, that I've done more good for society today versus me still being incarcerated right now. Eddie, how can anyone rationally contest <laughs> that proposition? And I'll tell you, when I listened to your story, I was thinking, actually, you'd be eligible, back when we had it in Illinois, for the death penalty. Yeah. The issue is... Is that a good policy? And I can tell you, you are a prime example of why, no, that would not be a good policy. Because what problem would you solve? What would you accomplish by giving Eddie Bocanegra the death penalty or locking you up for life or 60 years or something like that? What would that have accomplished? I'll tell you one thing it would have accomplished. We wouldn't have what you have done with your life as a repentant person with an obvious covenant relationship with God that causes you to have a sense of mission and probably uh, 
I would suggest as a fellow person of faith, some divine assistance in opening doors for you to make a difference in Chicago and in the lives of people in Chicago and elsewhere that saves lives, that changes lives, and does a tremendous amount of good. Eddie, there is no rational way a person could say the world would be better if we had executed or locked up for life Eddie Bocanegra. There's no way we could do that. And yet there are those who say that's the way we should deal with these problems. Uh, no, David, it's, it's not the way, right? And I agree with you, and I appreciate those comments. And here's the bottom line behind that, David, is that people, like, I've been very fortunate, very blessed. And there's many people that are just like me, who you've interviewed. They have a calling, right? And they're finding their ways through this calling. And it's amazing, David. It's amazing to see that. And we need to continue to lift that up. But there's also people who have done their time who are now working in restaurants. They have their own home. They're working their nine to five. And they're good people too. And they, they've learned and they're moving on. Sometimes they struggle. Hey, David, listen, I'm 45 years old. I still struggle, David. I still wake up in cold sweat. I still wake up from nightmares. I still have like all these different things that, that, that happen in my head, right? And 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 post traumatic stress syndrome. Oh, it is. I, there's all the symptoms. My wife's a therapist, by the way, right? So she sees that, you know. But he, here's the and thing. And for some people, like we just interviewed one of the board members of Fully Free Campaign, who said there's nothing post about it. I still live in an environment in which it's just stress syndrome. Especially when you're constantly working in the same field, right? There's a lot of that. But David, you know what happens a lot of times? Let's just say the governor of Illinois releases a thousand people. All right, it's happened. Let's just, just stay, stay, stay with me for just a second. A thousand people get released. Some of those people who are released, low-level offenses. Some people who might have done 20, 30 years. You know what? We need the best space where, where there's a budget issue, whatever it is, COVID. We're going to push you out six months. You're going to come out anyways, so we're just going to push you out six months. We're going to push out a year, whatever the case is. A thousand people. David, Somebody's going to mess up. Somebody's going to make a mistake. Well, particularly if they go back to the same circumstances that led them yes. to be there in the first place. And yes. compounding that by the fact that there are fewer opportunities to move forward than when they before they went to prison. David, they come back home to this 30 years later to the same environment. It's like nothing's changed. It looks actually even worse. And they get released from prison with nothing. Like it's not like, hey, here's here's a voucher for housing. He's I mean, there's limited, very limited resources there that I, I'm aware of at the state level with the Department of Corrections. But we just don't have enough resources to support people who need this. So many times it's like, here's a bus ticket, here's ten dollars, and out you go. Right? Figure it out. But but here's here's what I'm pointing out. We regress in this field of criminal justice reform. We regress for a couple of reasons. Sometimes we only focus on low-level offenses, but the truth is there's good data that demonstrates that people who've done time, more time than the lower-level offenses, also have a less percentage chance of coming back to the system. So that's one thing. Secondly, let's just say a thousand people get released, one person, two people end up robbing somebody or shooting somebody or harming someone, right? You know what politics do, especially opposition? They'll look at that one or two case and they build, right, their political strategy based on that. So the only people that really benefit from all this, right, are politicians 
who constantly keep going back and forth, back and forth. If we're trying to create real change, which I see with our lieutenant governor, and I see it with Kim Fox, I see this with several people, right? And I'm not here to debate politics. What I'm pointing out here is that some of these folks really use data to inform decisions. And that we cannot use this one outlier to condemn the rest of the 999 people who actually got their lives back on, who might be so struggling. And so I think we as a country have to kind of think about this very differently. Ask these serious questions, ask these hard questions. You know, like, okay, one pe one person that, that came out of prison two weeks ago harmed somebody. Should we throw away all the hard work that we've been doing because of the mistakes of one person? Or do we also try to unpack and understand where did we also fall short on that one person? What can we have done better for that one person? And could we create some guidelines or rules with politicians to say, people are making some good efforts in this space. Why regress? And I think that, that David, to me, is, is a sticky point, right? And what I see around this country, because the truth is, in the last 15 plus years, we have seen less people incarcerated. We see less people in terms of vandalisms and, and crime go down. Like there's stats across the country. This past two years, we've seen an increase in gun violence. That is true. We see it here in Chicago. We're seeing it in many other cities across the state of Illinois and in other cities for that matter. How much is associated to COVID? How much is associated to what's happening with the civil unrest, with, with the trust of law enforcement and so on? Like it's a combination of all that. But being in a space where there's tension is a good thing because then that allows us to really think and process these issues that we're grappling with. How do we make better informed decisions as we move forward? And that is critical, David. And that's why I'm here, right, uh, being interviewed because my story in itself is not unique. There's many examples that I can give you of good people who are doing perhaps much better work than I am. That's why your story is important, Eddie, because it's not unique. Yep. It's not unique. I mean, Eddie Bo Bocanegra, of course, you've done wonderful things. And some of that may be unique. But it's not because you, Eddie, are yep. unique. You're an extraordinary person. Well, there are other extraordinary people that are out there. Absolutely. That are doing some terribly tragic things. And it could have been different. And it can be different. Yep. What's really significant to me about your story is that you have done some extraordinary things, but there are so many people like you that could also do extraordinary things if they were somehow on a different track. Now, how to get there, yeah, that's a problem we need to be addressing. How to deal with all this trauma, yeah, that's what we ought to be addressing. And your program is addressing those things, and I want to get to that. I don't want to cut you off, but I want to move to, at some point soon in this conversation, to Ready Chicago and how you're going about addressing those root cause problems. Yeah. Well, let's do that, David. Let's, let's spend some time in this space, right, about how do we solve, right? Like, how do we talk about solutions? I mentioned earlier about meeting with the president back in early June. And let me just say, as somebody who's been formerly incarcerated and somebody who's, uh, who's in the space of gun violence, I was blown away by sitting just three feet away from the president in a small room at the Roosevelt Room in the White House. And I remember uh, just two months before that, I was at the Rose Garden with, uh, with the president as well as he was making an announcement around this issue of gun violence and, and really 
pushing some legislation to support the field, right? To support services, best practices, and evidence base. And so there's never been another president who's done that. Not even Obama, for that matter. And so that gave me a lot of hope. I'm hopeful that it also gives hope for a lot of people who are incarcerated or who are living through this process right now, right? And so here's what I'll say. We have been able to serve about 1,600 people thus far within Ready Chicago. And people might be scratching their heads, say like, well, 1,600 people in four years? Well, that's not a lot, Eddie. Well, imagine right now if the way that we looked at gun violence was the same way that the CDC looks at any outbreaks of infectious diseases, syphilis, gonorrhea, HIV, COVID. And imagine as, as part of the steps right, the CDC takes that the field of gun violence and, and criminal justice reform also took some lessons from that. And here's what I mean by that. The CDC, typically, what they try to focus on is education when there's outbreaks, and they try to narrow down where the carriers are at, who's spreading the virus, and then they saturate them with the resources that are needed, David. They give the vaccines, they give literature, they, they hunt them down, like they, they, go, they go look for them because they also know that if they're unable to treat this, right, that spread becomes contagious for everybody else. And so the way that we approach Ready Chicago is we know who is more likely to be a victim or, or offender of gun violence. But instead of taking a punitive approach by scaring them straight or by saying, hey, we know who you are, you're a gang leader, or you're, we see you walking around with guns and so on, imagine if you just saturate them with resources. And so there are three ways that people come to us, David. There is our partnership with the Department of Corrections and the Cook County Jail, where they identify people with gun cases or violent offenses whether they're on parole or they're on electronic monitoring, that's who we serve. In fact, we serve over 400 people that were just on parole. And in fact, within the Cook County Jail, I would say just about every single person that is on electronic monitoring who's in our program has a gun case. That's who we decided to work with. Like, we want to work with the highest risk individuals. And when you say high risk, what you're talking about is not necessarily high threat, but high risk of repeat offenses. Repeat offenses, for, especially for violent offenses or perpetra- right. or victimization. Yeah. And so we also have amazing partners in our community. Uh, we have six amazing partners, some of them which are Northern Employment Network, INVC, Centers for New Horizon, UCAN, Heartland. And these agencies identify people through street outreach. They identify individuals who they believe are also at high risk in these communities. So we use human intel. So now- So high risk and high threat. And high threat, correct. So, so think about it. But now we have the corrections, we have the jail as one point of identifying people. Now we have human intel from the people on the ground doing the work. And then the third part, which is pretty innovative in many ways, this is like another tool to add to the field of gun violence, is that we use this risk assessment, this um, predictive analytics by the University of Chicago's crime lab, where they help identify individuals who might not necessarily be in our radar but they use police data, hospital data, a number of other data points to say, hey, Eddie, we got a list of individuals that if we don't reach out to them, we don't find them and reach out to them, they're more likely to go shoot somebody or get shot. So we use that kind of intel as well to just go look for these guys. In some cases, some of our outreach workers don't even have an idea who these guys actually were. 
And I would say, man, if you were to hire our, our outreach staff to solve unsolved cases, our outreach workers are like detectives. They find our guys, David. And there's many ways they do that through social media. They go to the courts, find out when they got court next time. I mean, there's like so many tools they use. The point here is that we've been able to train, develop staff to go identify individuals, to go find them individuals and bring them into the program. And once they come into the program, we're able to give them a job right there and then. It's what we call transitional job. And then we also recognize the kind of psych of individuals, right? So we provide what we call kind of behavioral intervention services. And we do that now five days a week for an hour at a time. And then we pay them for that, David. We pay our men a gift card of $25 for participating in this kind of behavioral intervention services. We pay our men for professional development, $25. And then once they complete 100 hours of CBT or CBI, and then we bring them into various aspects of workforce experiences through our for-profit institutions or nonprofit partners that we have, where they're learning specific skill sets with support with coaches that are in the workforce space. And the idea, David, is like people come because of the jobs, people stay because of the CBI, the kind of behavior intervention. Just to comment on that, I mentioned the Sentencing Policy Advisory Council, which is a state agency in, here in Illinois, which I encourage people to go to their website, by the way, and look at the research that they've done on what works, what doesn't, and particularly cost-benefit analysis. And in their cost-benefit analysis of what works and doesn't work and what works best to reduce recidivism in the Illinois prison system, cognitive behavioral therapy consistently comes out at the top of that list of one of the most effective ways of addressing the problem that leads to people committing crimes. And now, Obviously, if this is effective in preventing people from returning to prison by going back to crime, or as I say, before you can go straight, you have to get your head straight, logically, you'd be deploying that before people go to prison to prevent them from committing those crimes in the first place. And so that really strikes me as being a research-based proven strategy that you're deploying there with cognitive behavioral initiative or intervention that you've described. And then you have jobs, an alternative to crime as a means to survive. Now, what kind of jobs and how do you get the money to do this? This is all really important and fascinating. Yeah. So when I mentioned earlier in the segment, our partnership with the University of Chicago's Crime Lab and Heartland that was possible because of the philanthropic community here in Chicago and some from even outside of our city, where they recognized that they wanted to address the immediate problem today and hence what CP4P is actually doing, which is a program out of the Metropolitan Family Social Services. And it's like hiring outreach workers to go back into the community and support individuals, right? Try to get as much ahead of the problem as possible. And then with Ready, because of what you just mentioned, we knew that there was good evidence, evidence-based services already with research that demonstrates that kind of behavioral therapy, both in prisons like in Cincinnati and with high school students through the BAM program, have demonstrated positive outcomes. We also know that workforce job opportunities also have helped to reduce gun violence with youth job programs, summer programs, so on. So like for us, it's like, well, so let's marry that. And then what else is needed? So you know, it's, it's interesting, David, because here's also what we've learned. The CBT or CBI 
initially we were using was a curricula based out of Cincinnati that Director Jeffries actually even leveraged when he was a director of prisons down there. And good positive outcomes. When we tried to use that same curriculum with our own participants, there was a lot of modifications that we had to do about wording, language, and so on, uh, more strength-based, because the scenarios that are played out are different. There's prison scenarios, and then there's like real street dynamic scenarios. And we did a landscape analysis to see if there's any other curriculums out there right now that really focus on people who carry guns. And what we learned, there was a gap there. There really wasn't a curriculum designed solely for people who just typically walk around with guns for public safety re reasons. So we did develop this curriculum, and now we're, we've been implementing this to test this out as well. So that's one piece that I want to mention about how the field is evolving. The field is constantly evolving, David. But the other part, too, about philanthropy, which is what you were leading to, is that I am extremely grateful of the MacArthur's, the McCormick's, the Briscoe's, all those foundations that have been supporting our work because it's taken that level of leadership on their end, from their boards, from those presidents, to recognize that we have to do something different about gun violence. And as a result of that investment, as a result, and I'm all the big about ROIs, and I hope your audience sees this, but when somebody entrusts me with resources, particular financial resources, it's my job to make sure that I could execute the, to the best of my ability and provide a good return of investment off those resources. I could tell you that our early analysis, we're about 90% completed with the research study, which I neglected to mention for your audience, that our partnership also with the Crime Lab has to do with also them providing a randomized controlled trial study. This is the same kind of studies that we do with medicine, what we do with vaccines. And it's unfortunate that we had to do it for this population to just simply demonstrate that this population is worth investing in. But we've done this, and it's because of that research, because of the rigor of the evaluation, why government, DOJ, the CDC, the president's office are asking these questions. Because there's no other program like this in terms of the rigor. Are there services like this? Yes, absolutely. And now we could further validate their work across the country, David. People who have been doing this work and like intuitively they know this, we know this works, but we just haven't had the science to support this. Well, now we do, David. And here's the thing, ROI. We're seeing those in the treatment group versus the control group. And this is comparing apples to apples. We're seeing a little bit over 30% reduction of victimization. We're seeing those who take up Red Chicago 30% less likely to be a victim of gun violence. 30%, David. As a victim. As a victim. As a victim. Again, I want to emphasize to your audience, this is working with the most acute risk individuals. This is scientifically demonstrating that we are identifying those who are at the highest risk. Just because you come from Inglewood or from North Lawndale, doesn't mean you fall in that category. Simply just because of you live in certain neighborhoods doesn't mean that you're right away qualified to these high-risk individuals. The second thing that I'll say, David, is that we are seeing about 80%, plus or minus one point, about 80% of those in Red Chicago who have taken the intervention, 80% of them, compared to the control group, 
I have not been arrested for murder or attempt murder. That means that 80% of those in the control group, 80% more people in the control group arrested for murder or attempt murder. That, my friend, is where the gold is at. And we have to mind that. We have to mind that. We have to mind those lessons from that, David. So, in other words, it's working. What you're doing works. And it's all from that point, not a matter of, well, how do we address these problems? It's how do we scale up these solutions? And how do we find the resources to do it? What I call, as a matter of public policy, the resource riddle. Because we're not made of money. Yep. But it isn't a matter of, well, we don't know how to solve problems. It's really more a matter of how do we fund and deploy and scale up the solutions to those problems? And what does that boil down to? Purely a question of priorities. Absolutely. Show me your budget, and I will tell you where your priorities are at. Show me the city's budget. Show me the state's budget. Show me the county's budget. Show me the president's, right, Congress budget. And I will tell you, David, where your priorities are at. And we talk a lot about race and equity. It's all tied into that, David. We talk about mistrust with law enforcement. It is all tied into that. You could accomplish so much of that, David, if we're just willing to just look at what the science is telling us, leverage the data that's out there to make more healthy and informed decisions. Put your politics aside. Put what all the other issues, right, that often get in the way and focus on the solutions. There are many solutions out there right now, David, that we could draw from. And Ready Chicago is an example of that, David. That is an example. You want to see more Eddies in the world? You want to see more Marlon Chambers in the world? This is one approach to do that. I say this is one approach because there's many approaches to this work. But we have the science and the data to back up what I've always known, David, that this population is worth investing. And if you do it the right way, we could have good success. It's unfortunate, though, that most of our funding, about 87% of our funding, comes from philanthropy. We're going on year number five now. We need government to step in. We need government resources, right? This program was never intended to be supported by philanthropy 100%. We need government to step in, to say, okay, Eddie, what are the lessons learned? How can we support this? What can be some, some things differently from those lessons you've learned? And the last thing that I'll say around this, David, and this is really critical for your audience, I would say you have to work and identify the right population if you're serious about reducing gun violence. That also means it's costly. It's going to cost you money. It's going to cost you to invest in this, especially early on. The second thing is that you have to bring the community into the solutions of this as well. And we've done that through our partners as well and through other coalitions. That's really critical. But the other part, too, behind this, David, that is really important for your audience to understand is that progress is not linear. People who have experienced a lot of trauma are going to have setbacks. But we have to build a system, a safety net for them, for when that happens. The very same way, David, that you, that many other parents in this country have done so for our own kids. Some of our kids go out to college. And they come back empty-handed. They don't complete it for a lot of different reasons. The anxiety, the stress, the whole nine yards. And we don't give up on them. We say, hey, 
Let's reassess. Maybe we start to write a community college. Maybe college is not the thing. Maybe it's a trade. Why can't we do the same thing for this population? David, I started off this conversation by simply pointing this out. None of us chose to be born to the parents that we were born to or to the zip code that we were born into. That determines a lot of what your future is going to look like. So we have an opportunity here to think about the lessons that we learned through Ready and the lessons that we learned through other models to applying, applying them in a way where it's like, how do we prevent people from making these mistakes early on? And for those who are right now in the cusp of this world, of this lifestyle, coming in and out of prison, who are running around with guns, that needs intense services. It needs that. And, and I will just conclude Amaya and David by saying this. If we're also serious about this work, that we also need to invest in the capacity of many of these local agencies to be able to provide the best quality service they can. That means not just training frontline staff. That's important, but that's just only a small piece. Need to improve their HR practices. Need to improve and support them to build in internal policies, procedures, databases, legal counsel, so that our agencies could be more willing and more, more like to work with this population. David, let me tell you this. Those results that we have with Ready Chicago, I gave our partners 110% credit for the success. And the reason why I say this is because there's so many other agencies who wanted to do this but didn't have the tenacity, didn't have what I would say the grit to challenge their own internal culture within those agencies or to challenge themselves in, in, in the field of how we've gone about this work. And we got some good partners that have said, you know what, we'll change the way that we've gone about our work to provide services for this population. And if you talk to any of our executive director who are partners of ours, they will tell you that some of them, you should think that they were serving this population 100%, and they realized that was not the case. So the lessons that we're drawing here within Ready, we're starting to share that with other cities. We just, we're partnering with the city of Philadelphia. There are local cities here that I wish we could have the same conversations versus constantly going to other cities and export these lessons learned. We could do the same thing in our state. But for that, there has to be an interest. There has to be an appetite. There has to be a will. And some of that will is also a political will. Which is why Justice Voices exists. To try to change public perceptions and as a result of that, change public policy. Just a reflection, just to wrap up on my end. Some people might be thinking, okay, as we deal with the most acute stages of this disease of what Lonnie Athens calls violentization, yeah, it's expensive, it's difficult, it's, but it's not hopeless. It can be done, and you're proving that. But now, from a cost-benefit analysis standpoint, why don't we start earlier? Why do we let the disease progress to that level? And what is the disease? The disease is violence. And violence spreads in much the same way as other diseases, and the carrier, the primary carrier, is trauma. And so let's start early and not let the disease spread to the point where it becomes as acute as in your world that you're dealing with. It's much more cost-effective, but even in its most advanced stages and that you're dealing with, you've demonstrated, you've proven there are solutions, solutions that work. So we have answers to these problems. And this is real crime fighting. 
crime fighting to me is this arena, not the punishment arena and not in trying to incarcerate everybody and figuring that that's going to be a solution. It's oftentimes necessary, but it's not a solution. It's an intervention. And so I just want to tell you what I told you when we first sat down about three years ago and talked. Yours is a story that needs to be told, and yours is a voice that needs to be heard. So thank you very much for being on this program, and God bless you in your work and for your work. Thank you, David. Definitely appreciate the time and, and just your advocacy around these issues of bringing more awareness. Thank you for that. For those of you who are new to Justice Voices, please visit our website at justicevoices.org for more information and other episodes. To make sure you receive notices of future episodes, please subscribe to the Justice Voices podcast on popular apps such as Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and others. Video of some episodes, including segments of this one, are also available on our Justice Voices YouTube channel. Again, be sure to hit the like button, subscribe, and click on the bell icon to be notified of future video segments of our full audio episodes. This is Justice Voices, stories that need to be told, voices that need to be heard.